0: hi everyone and welcome to the smart cities chronicles podcast your podcast for everything smart cities action investment and outcomes Uh, my name is adam beck host of the podcast and my day job is executive director at the smart cities council for australia and new zealand episode 65 on the chronicles and we head over to seattle uh seattle washington uh in the pacific northwest my old neighborhood kind of, when I was in Portland, Oregon. And on the line, uh, and our guest today is Kelsey Finch, who is Senior Counsel at the Future of Privacy Forum. Kelsey, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me, Adam.
0: Um, Kelsey, our first order of business on the podcast is getting uh, getting a sense of who uh, our listeners are going to be... Um, uh, listening to and uh, I'll start by asking you the question who are you and what do you do?
1: <laughs> so as you said I am a Senior Counsel at the Future of Privacy Forum. Uh, I lead our projects on smart cities and communities, on data de-identification, on ethical data sharing and research and other select projects. Um, the Future of Privacy Forum is a uh, U.S. Nonprofit focusing on, as it says in the name, the future of privacy. So, we are an independent, nonpartisan um, think tank. We try to advance responsible data practices for emerging technologies. And, you know, we find ourselves then often working in uh, the space beyond law, where technology has taken us maybe quicker than um, regulators or where then uh, social norms um, have necessarily broken ground. And so, getting to do lots of exciting work. Um, thinking through best practices, convening um, policymakers and stakeholders from a diversity of fields and backgrounds, and trying to develop, um, you know, guardrails so that we can use data and technology to improve the world around us in a number of ways, while still protecting and preserving individual privacy.
0: Uh, Kelsey, I, um, uh, I, I hadn't come across the Future of Privacy Forum before uh, October last year when um, you were at our Smart Cities Week. Uh, Conference in Washington DC, uh, and and since then I've had a chance to kind of um, take a little look on your website. Um, this is no sort of um, this is no small shop with three people, you know, on the second floor or above a Chinese takeaway store. Um, your 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 staff uh, expertise and the breadth and depth is depth is is, is quite significant. Um, is 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 your work? taking you right across the country does does the uh, does the workload increase what what sort of the 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 day look like there at the at the forum at the moment busy times
1: uh exceedingly busy times um and, and you know we we might not have started um on the second floor of the shop of three but when i started at fpf five years ago actually we were quite a small team um you know maybe five or six of us total uh and heavily reliant on um, a fantastic um, cohort of, you know, young attorneys and, um, you know, law school fellows and graduates and others um, to help us do the day-to-day. Uh, and in the five years that I've been at FPF, uh, we have expanded significantly. We're now up to 20 or 25 folks um, getting to do this all day, every day. And, you know, I think we'd all agree that this is a fantastic opportunity. This is an issue that only continues to grow in importance and in, um, you know, its connectivity to all aspects of our digital, um, you know, world these days. Uh, And exactly as you said, where we work um, around the country in the U.S., but also globally, um, a fair amount of activity being driven by Europe, of course, but keeping our eyes on new developments um, in Asia, in South America, in Australia, in New Zealand, uh, and trying to, um, you know, track the trends and developments of the conversation around privacy and data protection, because it is intersecting with every aspect of our lives these days. So never, never a dull moment, um, you know, always getting to see what's new and on the horizon in terms of technology, in terms of data uses, uh, and in terms of uh, society as a whole.
0: Did you ever, um, going through law school, did you ever think to yourself that you'd be meddling around in in technology and and, and smart cities and, and those types of things?
1: Uh, actually yeah that was that was my big goal. I didn't know it was going to be privacy, uh, frankly, when I decided to go to law school, I thought it was going to um, you know certainly do something with the internet, certainly something with technology, but I thought it was going to land more in the copyright um, you know side of the world uh, and I just kept getting drawn into um, you know conversations about the impact of data on um, individuals and society and the ways in which um, controlling information about us um, really is the underlying, um, you know, it underlies so many other fundamental rights and um, was very fortunate to go from law school into a fellowship at the International Association of Privacy Professionals uh, and have, you know, not, haven't left the field since it's just been, um, you know, incredible new things to explore um, every day. And it's a, it's a really, um, you know, fantastic profession to be in. Uh, you know, I think a really welcoming um, set of people with really diverse, Sets. So I think um, IPV membership has um, continued to explode over the last, uh, you know, decade or so. I think they turned 20 this year. Um, and so it's just become more and more of the day to day world. And so I get to work with people in companies, I get to work with people in civil society and academia, I get to work with policymakers at all level of government um, to try to um, tackle, uh, you know, really pressing issues of our day. And I think that's something that's really special.
0: Can I? Um, I'm going to be really unfair to you, <laughs> and um, <laughs> a, 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 and and ask a question about Seattle and and obviously your your home there at the moment. I mean, um, it, it, it's a real fascinating city. I mean, I was uh, I was visiting Seattle probably once a month, and it was between 2013 and sort of 2016. And um, the physical change, the, the, the growth, uh, I'll also say, you know, gentrification of Seattle that was unraveling in real time in front of me. You know, I'd walk up Pike Street, you know, um, uh, to, to sort of Capitol Hill and uh, I could almost see, you know, every month I'd go, you know, the, the condos were creeping further and further up. The, 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 the physical change um, the, the level of affordability or lack of, um, real estate development. And, you know, you, you can't escape those, those sort of, uh, big giant organizations like Microsoft and, uh, and Amazon, of course, what, what does, what does, um, what does it feel like? What does it mean kind of living in, in, in Seattle and also working in this space of tech data and, and smart cities?
1: It's, uh, it's one of the things that drew me to Seattle, actually, was that uh, looking to, um, and, you know, candidly, to have a little bit of mountains and rivers and the wildlife that Washington is so known for in my life, and to be able to find that, um, you know, I think a thing that draws so many people to the city, uh, which is the balance between, um, you know, be able to live a really urban lifestyle with, like, lots of art and culture and, you know, diverse people um, surrounding you, uh, you know, on the one hand, on the other hand, be able to, um, pretty quickly get out to the wilderness and be able to mm. have a little bit of a pause and a moment to yourself and a little privacy and it's interesting um, to find how people manage that and I think it is a city that's changing rapidly and um, certainly the influence of um, you know the technology sector in Washington can't be understated particularly in Seattle mm. um, but it's been really exciting also because that makes the, the the people of Seattle are much more engaged with these conversations with these ideas than folks in many places um, around the world and so there's a really active and really vocal community of privacy advocates um, mm. and one of my first experiences actually uh, a couple of years ago um, fpf worked on a project with the city of Seattle um, to do privacy risk assessment for its open data program and as part of that we came to town and we were interviewing city employees and we met with this community technology advisory board the CTAB, which is a standing group of, um, you know, folks who are interested in how the city is approaching technology questions and want to have a voice and want to be part of that process. And we ended up speaking to them about open data and privacy risk assessments at 7 p.m. on Valentine's Day. And there were still 20 or 30 people in the room. And that, to me, (laughs) said all I needed to know about the commitment of people to this conversation, these topics, and to being of um, active um, participants in the governance of data and in the um, you know the, in being part of the process. and that was so special and such an interesting thing. And on the one hand, I'm sure it makes it um, sometimes difficult um, for folks who aren't used to having to go through uh, a really robust and engaged um, public who really do understand the technologies and the nuances of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but on the other hand, I really think it helps the city come to better outcomes and have um, it is one of the reasons why the city is a leader. On so many of these areas has in fact a leader on privacy uh, and so i think it's a great opportunity to leverage the the different skill sets in the city uh, and you know having to continually focus to be inclusive and think through what that means as you said the sort of affordability challenges and the changing um, you know demographics and dynamics of the city are something that can't be um, you know ignored but i think that also then helps strengthen the ways because the city does do so much to engage people in these conversations. I think that that helps, um, create um, better outcomes overall. And so can hopefully create a model for, for other cities. So I'm a big fan of everything Seattle is doing clearly.
0: Yeah. Well, well, I I came through, uh, and was was part of the green building movement for many years, uh, and and sort of still am at heart. And, um, uh, that's where the green building movement kind of started in the US, you know, the first city to embrace, uh, you know, green building policy. And, um, there was some, um, there was some, uh, staff in the city that, that led that program, um, uh, became real rock stars, um, Lucia Athens and, um, and others. And, um, it's, it's certainly got, uh, certainly got the street cred in terms of setting, setting global benchmarks. Um. But uh, our conversation today beyond uh, Seattle and the city itself um civic civic data governance um, so let 's un- let 's unpack that um, can i can I start sort of uh, top level and and get you to share with me what those three words kind of mean when they come together civic data governance we we hear about governance a lot. Uh, data governance can you share what your views are around the idea of civic data governance to start with
1: yeah and i will also i want to throw out a quick shout out um because i was loving on seattle so much the team in portland um you know your old home is also doing some really fantastic things yes. these days on these issues so I want yes. to give them um you know a lot of kudos as well i'll um, let them know <laughs> but here <laughs> absolutely Um, Well, So to your question, uh, you know, I think because data governance is such a, um, is becoming um, such a well-known term that it's, in a lot of ways, it's like the term smart cities. it means a lot of things to a lot of people and it can be hard to (laughs) pin down a specific, um, you know, operable definition. Uh, And so in many ways, sort of the civic aspect, I think is the most important piece when we talk about civic data governance. We're really um, grounding it in the aspects that matter the most to, um, you know, that really fantastic intersection of local governments uh, and community and um you know, private sector partners and all of these things that are going into smart cities generally but making sure that when we're thinking about them we're coming to them from the perspective of um the public benefit and the public good and what it means um you know in sort of true um you know civic service civil service to To our communities, and so when I think about civic data governance, particularly, I'm really thinking about, um, on the one hand, organizations um, and particularly cities, but also their partners' obligations about, you know, carrying out in a responsible manner the day-to-day management of their data assets, and that can look like a lot of things. Um, But on the other hand, it's it's also about this broader sensibility about. Um, you know, taking on almost a fiduciary responsibility and making sure that they're considering the ethical and the privacy impacts of particular activities um, and acting with the best interest of individuals and communities and society at the same time. So not, um, you know, simply operating um, for efficiency or for profit or any of these motives that, um, you know, might be driving folks in the private sector, but really making sure that it's grounded in what's good for um, the whole of the community. So. Does that help give a little
0: yeah, bit of framing? Yeah. Do, do you think, this is a tough question, you know, on average across the entire country, and let's just talk about the US for the moment, you know, on average, is, is that the, the mindset that a city kind of starts with when it goes on its data journey or it starts to play with data? Is, is, that, is that idea of civic and, and sense of, you know, the, the whole and us? Is is that top of mind or does it come later?
1: You know, I think it depends on, uh, I think it's pretty contextual and I think it depends a lot on the particular city and their journey towards using data. There are, I think, a lot of places where, um, you know, smart city technologies or sort of civic tech, which is also its own little world, um, uh, is really grounded in making things more efficient using data to accomplish, um, you know, tasks and create interesting analytics and do data-driven policy that can start really small, maybe within a particular department, uh, and then sort of start to grow as there's a proof of concept and as people start to get bought in and see the benefits of thinking through and using data in um, a more um, you know, intentional, deliberate way. But there's also a lot of cities that really do come at it from the sense of, we have an obligation to be stewards of the data of our communities. And we want to seek their input and have a common value system and to sort of start from this principles-based top-down, um, or maybe not top-down, but sort of start start at principles and have a common language and have a common set um, of values that they can then work through and use to inform how data gets used in a more granular way um, citywide. And so there's, and, you know, a fair amount of variation, of course, between those polls. And a lot of it's gonna come down to, um, you know, the, the nature and the size and who's running um, a particular, um, you know, piece of the organization in terms of where it pops up. But I think more and more people are being driven to have these conversations. Um, it might be that, um, you know, a particular agency or a particular um, official um, sees some shiny new technology, um, you know, at a trade show or in the newspaper, or, you know, hears about somebody working on an interesting project, Um, within their own community and wants to you know adopt it and try pilots and start rolling things out Um, but more and more folks are starting to bring in um, this bigger picture of asking okay well but how are we going to protect the data once we have it what's going to happen you know in this circumstance or that circumstance you know how are we going to be transparent and let the community know what we're doing with these technologies Mm And so I think it's starting to become a little bit more routine than maybe it was um, a number of years ago.
0: From a, um, I don't want to say from a legal perspective, but maybe just sort of strictly speaking, is all data held by a municipality civic data in nature or, or, or by definition?
1: So legally, there isn't, uh, in fact, I think, a definition of civic data, but there's philosophically lots of really interesting conversations yeah. about data ownership and things like that to be unpacked. And, you know, the question of uh, of who actually owns this data at the end of the day, and is it the city as an organization, or is it, you know, the city acting on behalf of the public whose data, in fact, it collected? Um, and, and so there's some really interesting uh, nuances that uh, around that, but... You know, I think um, typically when we're thinking about it, we're thinking about civic data as data that the government uh, or the city is holding and using and managing. So um, Mm. if it acquires a data set from a private partner, um, that that would then become civic data. And, you know, once it comes into the city's control, it may be, for instance, um, accessible by public records acts in a way that it wouldn't if it had maintained purely in the private partners, um, you know, own data stores. And so thinking through that there are some legal implications um, for what it means for data to belong to or be in the hands of in, in the hands of the city. Um, but the definition of civic data, I think is a little bit more aspirational. It's more of a um, wanting to remind people that this is data that's being used for you know the public good by public servants um, for the benefit of the whole community rather than um, you know it can be really easy, I think, for folks who are deep in the weeds. Um, to think about data as an abstract and to not always keep in mind that it is about, it can often be about people. It's not always about mm-hmm. people, but often it's about people or it's from people in their community um, and needs to be respected and um, treated as such.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let, let, let's, um let, let's sort of bring into the fold now some of those other really important uh, topics, concepts, and words like ethics and security, for example. So, you know, privacy, security, ethics—you know—often rolls off the tongue in kind of what one sentence or one conversation. Um, is there is there a uh, is there a sort of a, a a blueprint or a methodology by which you work through those as an as a you know as a local authority? I mean, I mean creating and publishing uh, policies around those things are, are always very important. Is, is there one? And I don't know if you're going to be a bit biased here, but, you know, because of the, the FPF, but is there one that um, particularly you'd recommend uh, an organisation start with? Like if you had the choice of ethics, security or privacy, I, I don't have the time or resources to create policies or strategies for each at the same time. If I had to pick one, what, what, would, what would one pick first? Is, is there some logic to this?
1: Well, so I think the good thing and the bad thing about that question is that when you're addressing any one of those things, you are going to be in some way addressing the other two. Um, And and I think you're right. People use the terms privacy and security and ethics. Um, Sort of in a, we've thrown the kitchen sink at you. You, Hopefully you understand the gist of what we're trying to accomplish, and it it is helpful to sort of unpack these things. And so, first off, I have a lot of conversations with people about the idea that privacy and security are not, uh, or, or different things, and I've actually, mm. in fact, um, I say this as a privacy professional. We are very bad as a profession about defining privacy. We've been working for a hundred years, and we still don't have um, something that's easy and tangible, uh, and you know, fully agreed upon by everyone uh, as to what it means to be talking about privacy. Um, so, you know, we have on the one hand, we know that privacy isn't security. Um, those are two separate things, but they're equally necessary. You can't have privacy without security. Uh, and you can't have security without privacy. So important to um, address them both. Um, But you know, privacy also, a a lot of people think privacy is secrecy. And it's not that either. Mm. It's not, you know, the right to exclude people from knowing everything about me. It's about giving individuals control. Um, Mm. It's about how having people understand when and how and why their information will be used and where we can giving them choices about it. Uh, And so, There's a world in privacy as well, and I'm gonna unpack this one because I'm a professional. Um, There's also a split I think um, that folks are recognizing. This is built into the European framework, and I think more and more is part of the conversation in the U.S. and elsewhere about the difference between privacy and data protection. And data protection maybe is a little bit more of that compliance, a little bit more of the uh, making sure that you have, um, you know, put appropriate procedures and policies into place that the data is secured, that it is um, you know, being used on a lawful basis, that it is that there's, you know, it is protected. Um, there's privacy by design and privacy by default, and appropriate technical measures are in place. Um, whereas maybe the privacy aspect, then the sort of generalized rights of privacy, is more about, um, you know, your dignity and your autonomy and your sense of self, and a little bit more of the um, abstract concepts that are equally important, but maybe a little bit harder to, to operationalize or to, um, you know, reduce into uh, legislative language. Uh, And then, you know, there's also a lot of people who will use privacy broadly to take in a variety of things that go beyond um, data protection, that go beyond traditionally that sort of realm of control of information about myself, and that steps into ethics and that steps into concerns about things like um, discrimination and equity um, and, you know, democratic functioning. And and so making sure that all of those things are um, part of the conversation, I, I think, is that ethics. Um, and maybe a separate ethics and equity kind of um, part of the conversation where there's overlap, certainly. The Venn diagram think will show um, a lot of overlap between each of these three circles. and um, but but not entirely. And so there's experts in each of these fields that you know fortunately have been working on these things for for many generations and thinking through um, you know the implications and building their own um, vocabularies and approaches and tools and frameworks. But it is a difficult thing to try to bring them together and particularly if you're trying to prioritize um you know it, and i think just the, the lesson to be learned here is that they are intertwined you can't think about um how you're going to secure information without you know you're thinking about who should have access to this under what conditions those are privacy questions as well you need to be thinking mm-hmm. about um you know which organizations which individuals should be able to have access to these and for what purposes and you need to be able to document that and justify that and have Um, communicate that to the public and be transparent about it. And so in a lot of these ways, these things all come together and when you're thinking through, um, you know, what security often allows you to say what the system, you know, what the normal parameters for the system are, um, but privacy and ethics will inform what those parameters should be, what you should be allowed to do with the information, even if it's all authorized. And so that's where I think um, there's a lot of beneficial overlap. know, I'll throw in also that we're starting to see the development of this privacy engineering um, side of the profession, which is interesting, but I think still probably um, nascent, but to the extent that folks uh, and lots of encouragement, um, you know, for folks in the U.S. to continue working with academic partners and institutions, but there's a lot of really interesting um, privacy engineering activity happening um, in the academic world that is only just starting to cross over Um, But we're starting to see some of the cities reach out and find, you know, fellows and interns and um, partnerships with students that are um, hopefully going to be fruitful in the future and maybe help square all these things together.
0: Yeah. Okay. That's, uh, that sounds like a a separate episode on its own privacy engineering. Um, so, so let me be a bit, um, controversial and provocative for a moment, Kelsey, and, um, uh you you don't have to answer this question and i said to you before we came <laughs> came on i said i don't really ask hard questions but um given what you just said um let me make a statement uh, so it's 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 not necessarily a question so it's a statement and i want to get your reaction to it um so okay. so ba- based on uh that that little sort of conversation we had there security ethics privacy control things like that um one would then have to believe that the proposed civic data trust for sidewalk labs project at waterfront toronto is a very good proposition for the community and for other stakeholders because the idea of the civic data trust picking up as a tool and embracing a number of those uh, concepts seems to be on paper um the theory of uh quite uh, quite robust and and the intent of a civic data trust uh is upholding a number of those uh aspirations and objectives would it not be
1: yeah well so i will say that on paper definitely agree i think We've had lots of conversations about data trusts, and um, you know, in Toronto and in KISA and, and elsewhere. And it is really, um, I think, a very attractive solution for a lot of reasons, including because it allows you to bring together um, all of these different kinds of threads uh, and think through, um, you know, important concepts in a um, transparent and inclusive and meaningful way. Mm. Uh, but you know the struggle with this is I think, and everything is trying to figure out how to operationalize it. And we don't have many good models yet um, for what a civic data trust would look like um, as a legal instrument, as a you know or as a um, you know independent or intermediary um, you know between cities and private partners and individuals. and trying to figure out the structure is going to be really important that you know the for all of the things that we have in the world that are um you know built on good intentions it still really matters how we build them out and how um, they're managed and held accountable and so i think that's the hard work that's being done by a Mm. lot of folks right now there's Mm. you know absolutely a ton of fantastic research happening by folks in civil society and academia um in cities and in companies around the world um but it's still a little early i think to put our blessing on it and say that this is in fact the right solution um before we sort of see and walk through the ramifications lots of really um you know and this is the challenge of course for all the things like privacy and security and ethics is that you can have the ideas agreed upon but getting them down into operations to get them into writing is always um you know the the trickiest part uh, and particularly for something that's going to be as important um as managing a whole city's um, data infrastructure but you know, I think that there's a lot of promise there. We've seen a lot of um, efforts to find um, new collaboratives, new data commons. There, There is definitely a push in this direction of uh, more collectively managed data systems. And I think that's really exciting because that will help um, hopefully, um, you know, create more trust or create more clarity and transparency or create a system that's not going to, um, you know, be an operational burden on any one particular organization such that it never lives up to its goals. And, and you know, those goals are important and meaningful and we want to make sure that individuals um, and everybody in the community can access, um, you know, data of, about what the city is doing, um, the technology that's being deployed is understood um, and has been vetted, that, you know, the role of the private sector partners and private sector data um, is clear, and you know that there's quality controls in place, and all of these other things that data trusts um, hopefully can help us achieve. Um, but the devil will be in the details, and as they translate from you know from paper and into um, you know actual organizations, there's a number of models that we've seen um, managing. Uh, you know, I think a fair number of models that are um, focused. And I applaud them for this on um, more things like environmental data or things that are a little less um, sensitive than, mm-hmm. you know, personally identifiable information. Uh, and I think that's always the place to start, um, even though there's a lot of folks in cities who struggle with that. Um, but it is often tempting to tackle the biggest challenges and the most pressing needs first. Those are often, however, our most vulnerable communities and, yeah. um, you know, shouldn't become experiments um you know for a system that is untested or untried but rather we should um you know slowly develop those skills and flex those muscles and make sure that there is a stable infrastructure in place i i you know i'm doing a lot of thinking and exploring around civic data trust um but i'm still um, a little hesitant to to tell folks um to go forth and start working on one um, before we have a little bit more of a sense of um, what are the appropriate kinds of safeguards to have in place or what are the kinds of models that will actually work just so that, um, you know, cities and their partners don't have to reinvent the wheel a hundred times.
0: Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I, uh, I I spent a a good few months, uh, probably mid last year, diving deep into um, civic data trusts. And um, I, I was sort of quite surprised that there's still a real lack of you know, deep implementation or opera, operationalization of them. You know, we've got the ODIs pilots that happened and Keyside and a few others. But um, obviously, still uh, a lot of water to go under the bridge before we um, we sort of see them as commonplace. Um, Kelsey, just um, you know, here's one for for you know the the, the moment right now. Um, and when I refer to the moment right now, uh, a global you know health pandemic you know unraveling in real time in front of our eyes um you know i don't know i i don't know what what sort of you know privacy lawyers do in you know in their spare time for fun but um i um i sort of have been um geeking out a little bit and and really uh just for interest more than anything trying to sort of get a sense of how different nations have applied and implemented different levels of tracking right um you know i've had friends send forward to me text messages that their family members in seoul have received um we we sort of we can read around the 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 various levels of of tracking and and applications that are being used in in china to help the spread of COVID 19. As sort of like a privacy practitioner, and particularly sort of from from the legal side of things, what uh, what have you seen? How do you feel? Are there any moments in time where you kind of go, oh, you know, maybe? A little bit of relaxing of, of sort of, you know, privacy rules and regulations could, could really help us here. Is there a tension there as a, as a practitioner and, and believer in, in, you know, privacy that, that kind of, um, you know, pl- plays with you during, you know, our, our current situation with COVID-19?
1: Yeah, it's a great question, and it's a, um, it is certainly, I think, a time that has um, changed the posture of a lot of people on privacy, um, and I think, you know, a lot of the, the perspective that uh, myself and others are taking um, is that in these circumstances, we do, in fact, we, you know, we've plans in our laws, and our privacy laws, and in our other systems for how to respond um, in emergency situations, and our role is to help make sure that those policies and procedures are being followed, um, that folks aren't using this as a um, open door to lasting or limitless surveillance. Um, But the data can in fact be used in appropriate ways to help combat um, the pandemic. And so that means um, making sure that the law is being followed with regards to what's able to be disclosed and accountability. Making sure that any kind of, um, you know, surveillance or tracking systems that go into place um, are shut down after, um, you know, this situation is over. After the emergency um, no longer requires um, that kind of information to be flowing, and making sure that it's not being then reused for other um, purposes. The last thing we want is folks to be collecting information about, um, you know, contacts or location um, or travel histories, and then using that for things like um, immigration enforcement, for example, instead of, you know, helping respond to the pandemic or Mm. um, develop uh, appropriate solutions in this particular circumstance. Um, But it's making sure also that the data collected is proportionate and necessary to the need. Uh, And, you know, I think that these are all really important ways that, you know, and a thing that I often say to folks in cities is that in the bigger picture, privacy isn't here to be a hurdle towards technology or data flows. Privacy, um, and, and I liken it to brakes on a car. Brakes are really there to help a car go faster. Similarly, privacy is here to make innovation go faster. It just gives you more control uh, around the speed that you're moving forward, and that's really important for being able to um, move at the pace that you want and be able to do the things that um, you're hoping to achieve without unintended consequences um, for individuals and communities. And so we're doing a lot of thinking around how to help, um, and there's certainly a lot of solutions that we've seen proposed out there. Um, from folks in tech, from folks in government, uh, and really our goal is to help um, connect data that's going to drive what's needed by um, epidemiologists and health professionals and um, you know pri- private, uh, primary policymakers. So rather than um, you know looking around under the street streetlight because uh, that's where the light is for our car keys, we're going to be hopefully helping. Um, find the information that's going to matter and that's going to be important, rather than just looking for what's already been collected. There's, a, I think, a lot of an emphasis to look towards, um, you know, wearables collecting temperatures or connected thermometers or, um, you know, all, all sorts of different kinds of cell phone data. And these things might look um, useful upfront, but they might not actually solve the need. And mm. which case, it's not necessary. It's, in fact, a waste of resources to try to clean them up and get them available. Uh, And also trying to remember that they might not be representative of the whole population, right? So there's a lot of these, and this is maybe part of the ethics and equity conversation, but if you're relying on connected thermometers to help track fever, um, you know, in your community, you're going to have to remember that a lot of the folks um, who are particularly vulnerable in low socioeconomic, um, you know, communities or people who are um, elderly or less inclined to be using those technologies, Will be left out of that data, and you might be getting skewed and inaccurate results, and that's certainly not what we want to be basing policy on. So it's a you know a really important time right now to help hold institutions accountable, but to also help use the tools that are um, that are already part of our day-to-day work as privacy professionals um, to do the vetting quickly and to make sure that the data is of you know is quality and is representative and is serving um, you know the particular need and is you know is proportionate to that need uh, to make sure that we're striking that right balance. And I'm sure that this will continue to evolve because the situation is changing hourly, uh, but, you know, have been really excited to see innovative solutions um, being, um, you know, tested around the world and hopefully starting to see um, and learn what works the most effectively so that that can be rolled out in other places.
0: Yeah. It's, it's a really interesting time. I mean, uh, one thing I've noticed is with uh, pretty much you know a majority of the world at home now, <laughs> either in in mandatory lockdown or you know voluntary isolation or indeed working from home like you and I are, um, the the sort of um, you know if I can say it sort of you know the, the outer parts of many of our cities the suburbs are quite kind of are kind of quite alive at the moment. You know, uh, in many cases that the downtown or CBD is is quite dead. Um, yet, sort of the neighbourhood centres, the local coffee shop, you know, because everyone's at home. Um, and what I have noticed is, um, let, let me try and sort of explain this. As you, as you get out of the city, as in the the downtown, the the built-up urban core, as you get out of the city, the kind of availability of of data dissipates a little bit. Um, I was chatting with some cities last week and I said, if there was one data set, one data source you could have right now to help with your immediate relief and, and you know, um, s- stopping the, the bleeding and hemorrhaging with respect to sort of small business closure, you know, retail and restaurants and local stores, you know, what would that data source be? And they said, well, we would love, you know, like a, a real time source of, you know, how many, how many businesses how many small businesses have closed down today uh, and and that that data set is just it seems to be the elusive one that everyone wants um, do my question then Kelsey is do you think as we come out of this um, of this current crisis do do you think there'll be a greater appreciation for data and insights and 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 how it can help us as communities and economies? And is there anything specific in terms of type of data or data sources that you think uh, are, are going to sort of be more valuable than, than others?
1: Yeah, I think that absolutely that we are starting to see um, some of the critical gaps in the data that we're collecting about our communities, some of the places where, um, you know, we might not have as much insight as we would want or need in times of emergency. And I think great to identify those now and hopefully be able to work towards, um, you know, finding an appropriate way to, to get that kind of insight. I think we're learning a lot about, um, you know, how easy it is to make information flow or not during um, times of, of emergency. Uh, and I think that's also important just to sort of identify the operational and technical hurdles that we might all be living through and hopefully uh, I hear cities talk a lot about resilience. I think in some ways that's you know, they they have security in mind, but I think not often managing those information flows uh, and making sure that they are open and and functioning um, no matter the circumstance. I think this is an important part of of building resilience in a digital way um, going forward. Uh, I will say that in terms of information that we will be collecting we're trying to i think have an interesting conversation right now about the benefit of insights and data about individuals versus about communities or mm. trends and so yeah. trying to figure out that balance between and, and in some ways it's the problem of the heat but like how much information do you need to have about how many individuals to be able mm-hmm. to make actionable um, yeah. decisions and informed decisions And that's a really tricky one, but hopefully one that we can help continue to work through. Uh, And I will say that I think that there's going to be um, a very big push towards data-driven governance and policy uh, as the immediate, um, you know, wave of medical um, response dies Mm -hmm. down as we turn into uh, economic recovery. I I will say that for that, it is, um, for us here in the U.S., it's... um, the census day, and I think that's a really important um, piece of this because it's going to be really hard to do um, policy and understand changes to our economy and our society and our communities if we don't have a denominator to be working from, which is uh, so I think that the important call um, to encourage folks to fill out their census forms and be part of getting counted so that we understand as a baseline what our community looks like right now and then we can be able to make decisions on top of that. Of course, it's a difficult um, task during a global mm. pandemic. And there's understandably lots of other things on people's mind. But I think that's going to be a particularly important data set. Uh, and, you know, I think we'll continue to, to learn um, what will be helpful. I think lots of workforce data will be needed, lots of educational data, lots of the information that um, our statistical agencies are already quite good at compiling and using. Um, although there may be of course, with everybody working from home and dealing with disruptions, a little bit of a delay um, on that. But hopefully we will have time over the coming months um, to start to put those systems into place and to start to get the right data and the right insights at hand.
0: Well, the coming months are going to be certainly interesting. Um, My my last question then, Kelsey, um, uh, I suppose, you know, this is usually the, you know, the, the, the feel good question to end the podcast, which is, you know, what, what are you looking forward to uh, for the remainder of 2020? I know it's um, sort of unusual and unprecedented times, but, but what, what can you share in terms of uh, what's coming up for you and, and what do you, what are you really looking forward to?
1: Well, so looking forward to, you know, frankly some of the conversations that we've been having globally around COVID-19 have been really productive and positive and it brought people together in rooms that, you know, I think would have been nice to do in the past, but now is a must. And people Mm -hmm. are really, it's been really encouraging to see people just immediately jump in and offer up their skills and their experiences and their services to collaborate um, and to try to generate um, workable solutions as quickly as possible. And, And, you know, to find all the different ways that people can contribute. And that's frankly what I'm looking forward to the most is continuing to explore uh, the questions and ramifications and to help inform policymakers, uh, you know, SPF is doing a fair amount of work to try to create, um, you know, give people a deep dive into what it means to be collecting location data, what it means to be managing student privacy, what are all the available resources that might be out there already for folks around um, responding to a humanitarian crisis, what are the roles for privacy and data protection in those circumstances, and trying to compile resources and develop um, best practices to the extent that that's possible in these times and try to connect people and help hopefully um, deliver solutions that will both uh, allow frontline people in cities and you know at, at all levels of our health system and all of our policymakers around the world address the pandemic, but then also be able to walk through the recovery period uh, with preservation of individual privacy and civil liberties uh, at you know the forefront of these issues. so. I think just continuing on the work that we're doing is, uh, is what I'm looking forward to in 2020 and, you know, hopefully getting to see the people that I work with in cities and communities across the country, um, you know, get the support and tools that they need, um, to serve their community.
0: Well, Kelsey, thanks for those, uh, those final, um, uh, thoughts. Uh, it's been a delight to have you on the the podcast today and I really want to, uh, Uh, On behalf of our listeners, if I can do that, uh, thank you so much for taking some time out and and sharing your thoughts with us.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So for our listeners, that was Kelsey Finch, Senior Counsel at the Future of Privacy Forum. Uh, If you're near a uh, web browser, thoroughly recommend that you uh, drop into it uh, the forum's website, which is fpf.org. There is an amazing uh, and deep uh, selection of uh, resources uh, and articles and content there, uh, not only just generally around privacy, but um, a, a fantastic sort of uh, range of um, thoughts, uh, particularly around the current uh, COVID 19 crisis and the role of uh, privacy and other similar things. Uh, For our listeners that aren't subscribing to the podcast, you can do so. Uh, Head to wherever you get your podcasts from, we'll be there. Just look for the Smart Cities Chronicles. You can also head to our website, smartcitieschronicles.com. My name is Adam Beck, host of the Chronicles. We look forward to bringing you another episode soon. Uh, In the meantime, uh, stay safe and keep well.